Our first speaker tonight is Dr. Nathan Schleter. He's a professor of, Hill, or professor of philosophy and religion at Hillsdale College in Michigan, where he also directs the pre-law program and teaches courses in social and political philosophy, ethical theory, philosophy, and literature. He is a recipient of the Hillsdale College's Dougherty Award for Teaching Excellence. Nathan has his BA in History from Miami University of Ohio and an MA and PhD in Politics from the University of Dallas. He's the author of One Dream or Two, Justice in America and Thought of Martin Luther King Jr., The Humane Vision of Wendell Berry, and he's the co-author with Nikolai Wenzel of Selfish Libertarians and Socialist Conservatives, The Foundations of the Libertarian Conservative Debate. He's published in numerous um, journals, including First Things, Touchstone, Logos, Communio, uh, Public Discourse, and Perspectives in Political Science. And Nathan has been a fellow of the National Endowment of the Humanities and Princeton University. And this year, while on sabbatical, he will be working on his next book, Playing with Fire, The Peril and Promise of the Utopian Imagination. He and his wife, Elizabeth, who's a homemaker and homeschooler, have eight children. And while at Hillsdale, I was lucky enough to have him for the core class on the US Constitution, which was one of the best classes I took there. And as a side note, that he doesn't know this, but he was actually, when I was at Hillsdale, the topic of conversation amongst, there's a sort of a core, always was a core male Catholic population. And he was a topic of conversation for two reasons that were both good. And one of them is that there was a phenomenon that we discovered when we were there that the, that I was gonna, trying to think of the good way to put it, that good Catholic men who are a little nerdy end up with the most beautiful wives. <laughs> and I was gonna say something I've since um, experienced in my own life. And, and second, I was going to say, just to embarrass him a little bit, that he also was a topic of conversation and that the male students would always watch the professors with their families. And he was often commented on about as the model of how to raise children, especially boys. So anyway, I'm pleased to have him here all the way down from Hillsdale, Michigan, Dr. Nathan Schleter. So glad Tim stayed awake in that class you took with me. This is really gratifying. That was an achievement. Uh, I'm not so happy with him that he just gave you permission to look at your phones the whole time. Uh, one more excuse not to pay attention to me, <clears throat> but to claim that you are. It's really a, uh, honor, an honor for me to be with you here uh, in South Carolina from Hillsdale, Michigan. Uh, this is just a, a, a wonderful parish. Its reputation extends far and wide, so I thank Father Newman for his good work, uh, TJ, of course. Um, and I'd like to recognize my colleague, Dan Sundahl, who showed up, uh, was a beloved colleague of me at Hillsdale for many years, and now is near you. And if you get a chance to spend time with him, you should, because he's a wonderful man who knows a lot about uh, literature and philosophy and everything else. So, <clears throat> you did not get uh, pounded by Hurricane Florence. I understand you survived the worst of it. Uh, it's, that's wonderful. Uh, but if you're like me, you've been experiencing another hurricane. Um, this one coming from inside uh, the body of Christ. Uh, and it's been a very uh, difficult uh, few weeks, months, longer uh, for, for many of us. Uh, but there, there's great hope here. And I'm glad to be with friends. It's encouraging for me in this time uh, to be with friends like you uh, in the body of Christ. Since this is the first talk of the evening, I'm going to say a few words about social justice. Um, the main topic of my talk, though, is Catholic social teaching. You should have a handout in your folder, 
and I'm going to follow that handout. It would probably be helpful for you to have that handout with you. Um, I'm sorry, I'm technologically challenged. I could have done a PowerPoint, but I also like to be able to take something home with you. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go for about 45 minutes, no longer. I've, I've got a clock, a watch, stopwatch up here, so I guess that means shut up no later than 7.30-ish. Uh, and I'll try to be uh, very faithful to that, so we'll see how much we can get through. So the theme of the conference, social justice, isn't what you think it is. If you didn't know, it's taken from a book by the late Michael Novak, a book by that title. And uh, it's a great question. What do you think social justice is? Does anyone know what it is? If I stopped you right now and said, define social justice, what would you say? And then there is the question, what is it? There's what we think it is, and then there's the question, what is it? And there are some perplexing problems with the very term social justice. I'm going to go through a few of them. Number one, social justice. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? Because justice is a virtue that governs our relationships with others. It's intrinsically social. So uh, what does it mean to call something social justice? All justice is that. Secondly, how do we relate social justice to the traditional distinction between distributive justice and commutative justice? That was the basic traditional uh, distinction of species within the virtue of justice. And then this term social justice came up. So is it some third thing, or does it fit into the other two? That's an interesting question. Third question, how does social justice relate to social charity? Uh, is that an oxymoron too, social charity? Like there's private charity and then there's social charity, um, individual charity. But that's a big question. Is there a distinction between social justice and social charity? And then finally, how if at all can a word, can, can the word justice or injustice apply to a state of affairs over which no person has control or responsibility? So you talk about things like you know, inequality, income inequality is you know, violates social justice. Well, usually when we say something is unjust, like no one would say the hurricane Florence is unjust. That was so unjust that that hurricane came. Like, why don't we say that? Because we can't hold anyone responsible. If we do, we think maybe God did it, right? Then, then we might have a justice question on our hands, but if we're just talking about the forces of nature working the way they do, it's not a justice issue to have a hurricane. Uh, and like that, there, we have many states of affairs over which uh, it's very difficult to see how any person committed an injustice such that it could be called social justice or social injustice. So these are difficult questions, and we're going to have to work them out and think them through, and hopefully we can shed light on them over the next two days. I'll have a little bit more to say about them before we're done. Okay. So um, I think Novak probably had you in mind and all of us when he said social justice, it's not what you think it is. Because at least for my generation, and I suspect, suspect this might be true for many of you as well, when you, if you grew up Catholic, Catholic social teaching, social justice was socialist justice. And Catholic social teaching was Catholic socialist teaching. And so what we were taught is that Catholic doctrine requires redistributive taxation, expanding the welfare state, opening immigration, universal government health care, uh, hostility to capitalism, etc. And by the way, you should not talk too much about things like abortion and marriage, the hip issues. That's how 
many Catholics in my generation learned about Catholic social teaching and those of us who had deep convictions about uh, the lives of the unborn and about marriage uh, and the sexual revolution and the, the, the corrosive effects of that revolution, um, we just kind of ignored Catholic social teaching. Uh, that just doesn't sound right, and so I'm not a big fan of it. Okay, I'm Catholic, but I'm just gonna ignore the Catholic social teaching thing. Um, and we still have voices that sort of reinfor uh, reinforces prejudice. So just, I don't know, six months ago, this uh, Bishop uh, Marcello Sorando, who is the Chancellor of the Pontifical Academy for the Social Sciences in Rome, uh, in an interview said the following, Right now, those who are best implementing the social doctrine of the church are the Chinese. He called the communist state extraordinary. Quote, you do not have shanty towns. You do not have drugs. Young people do not take drugs. Instead, there is a positive national conscience. I'll say so. Uh, um, now, I don't want to argue directly with Sarando. I won't point out the logoi, the forced abortions, the harvesting of organs, the suppression of religion, the pollution. We could go on. But that the chance for the Pontifical Academy for the Social Sciences would say that is, to me, nothing short of stunning. And in my view, it, it, it exemplifies the problem that faithful Catholics have in appropriating faithfully the social doctrine of the church. And yet, I'm going to argue that Catholic social teaching grows from the very heart of the church, from our very identity as Catholics. That's what I'm going to argue. Um, and so I pulled some quotes out of the uh, catechism, and I'm going to go through some of them. S some of you will know this. I'm sorry. Uh, if I bore you, get out your phone, pretend you're asking a question. I won't know. Um, it's been said that it's far more important to remember old things than to learn new things. So it's important to recall what the church has actually said about Catholic social teaching. Now, the title of my talk is The Catholic Option, and some of you, I hope, noticed the play on the word, the Catholic option, noticed that I am alluding to the Benedict option, which you may have heard about, uh, by Rod Dreher, uh, which has gotten a lot of play among Catholics as well as many others. Um, I like Rod Dreher. I, there are many things I like about the Benedict option. Uh, Rod contributed to a book that I edited on Wendell Berry. Um, so there are things I like, but I, I think that Rod gets some things fundamentally wrong in that book. And fundamentally, I think it trades on a confusion between the lay and religious vocations. Uh, that the option we need is not the Benedict option, it's the Catholic option. And I'll hopefully have a chance to say more about that, but that will really be the topic of my talk tomorrow. So if I don't completely bore you uh, tonight, then come back tomorrow afternoon, come back tomorrow morning, uh, but stay for the afternoon, and then you'll hear my thoughts on that. Okay, so let's start with quote number one, social justice. This is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. S society ensures social justice when it provides the conditions that allow associations or individuals to obtain what is their due according to their nature and their vocation Social justice is linked to the common good and the exercise of authority. Now let's just notice some things here. First of all, society ensures social justice. But wait, society is not a person. How could society be responsible? Society hit me. Society can't hit you. Only people can hit you. But perhaps that objection assumes a kind of individualism that is false to the reality. Is it not the case that, that not all societies are simply collections 
of individuals and nothing more. Isn't it the case that at least some societies involve a membership in which our identity is partly constituted by that society as a whole and is not simply reducible to its separate individuals? I think this is particularly true of political society. So if someone says, as they do, America fought in World War II, is that true? How did America fight World War II? No, Roosevelt fought it, but I didn't fight it. That could be one answer. Uh, and yet, I think there's a very real way in which uh, as citizens of America, we were all in some way collectively responsible for fighting in World War II. When we say America fought, we mean that we, in some sense, have a membership in that association, which is more than just the individuals. And so I think that the definition of social justice here on this handout, it has in mind political society especially. It has a response. When we talk about social justice, we're talking about, I think, I'm just offering this here. We can argue about it for the next day. Because <clears throat> I just thought of this a few days ago as I was looking at it. It seems to me we are in some real sense thinking of ourselves as citizens acting through our authoritative decision makers. And therefore we are in some sense responsible for political decision making. And so I think that's what the catechism is referring to. And some evidence for that is that it refers to the common good and authority at the end of that passage. Second thing, notice that this passage on social justice refers to it's, the phrase says, provides the conditions. Let's circle that 10 times. It does not say society should provide individuals their due according to their nature and condition. It says, provides the conditions in which those persons can achieve their due. So, uh, what we get here, I think, is a suggestion. What are those conditions? It's the legal framework which bears very powerfully on the degree to which human beings can flourish or not flourish. The structure of laws and the enforcement of those laws are powerfully important. What I'm saying is as citizens, we are partly responsible for those laws, the nature of those laws, the enforcement of those laws, and we need to be aware of the moral boundaries surrounding those laws. Let me give just a couple examples of this. You're wondering if I'm ever gonna get past number one on this handout. Uh, I may not, but that's why you have it, so you can read it. Uh, so in Democracy in America, a great book written in the 19th century, Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who wrote probably the best book ever written on America, uh, French Catholic, at least raised Catholic. Uh, he claims in that book that the most revolutionary act that the early Americans engaged in was to abolish the laws of entail and primogeniture. Some of you, like a few lawyers in the room, they're thinking, yeah, of course. We need fee simple absolute. Uh, but others are wondering, how could that be? Um, this is, so these are real estate laws. These are laws about how you hold landed property. How could that be the most revolutionary thing? Listen to what Tocqueville says. He says, estate laws ought to be placed at the head of all political institutions for they have an incredible influence on the social state of peoples of which political laws are only the expression. Let me explain. The law of entail was a feudal law which prohibited estates from being divided up. It required estates to be kept together. And then primogeniture, as you may recall from your eighth grade social studies class, was the law that required that the, the land in whole be passed on to the oldest son. 
So these were estate inheritance laws. Now, think about the effect that has. Um, uh, entail and primogeniture are, are the foundations of the aristocratic order. They keep the family together as a unit because they're forced into dependencies on that land through the father and then through the oldest son. By turning real estate into a commodity that can be broken up and sold, what's left to hold the family together? Affection, fidelity, love, but not the land. Tocqueville writes this, from the moment you take away from landed property, uh, owners, from landed property owners, a great interest of sentiment, memories, pride, and ambition in preserving the land, you can be assured that sooner or later they will sell it, for they have a great pecuniary interest in selling it. Since transferable assets produce more interest, than others and lend themselves much more easily to satisfy the passions of the moment. It's easy to see how the abolition of, of uh, entail and primogeniture could lead to the destabilization of the family. You because know, you sell the land, other people have it, you gotta move, you gotta provide for yourself now. Uh, suddenly your kids are living all across the United States and I always ask my students, uh, how many of you uh, live in, this, in the town where you were born? You'd be amazed how few of them still live in the town they were born in. Uh, so is this not destabilizing? And yet, yeah, we want stable families. Should we go back to entail and primogeniture? Look at how just that one law about holding real estate profoundly affected the association of the family and by extension other kinds of uh, norms and practices. And you can say the same thing for patents. You could say the same thing, especially for corporations. Laws of general incorporation, books have been written about the, the, the move in the 19th century to allow for laws of limited, limited liability, general incorporation, and what that does to concentrate power, but also creates incentives to create wealth. These are touchy subjects today, aren't they? I mean, people are wondering, corporations are not all that popular these days. And th these are questions that it seems to me are appropriate for asking about social justice. And I think Catholic social teaching has something to tell us about them. By the way, I think Novak misses this point on social justice in his last book, because he treats it as kind of an apolitical personal virtue. That's how he tries to describe it, whereas I think that it's, a, as I said, a political virtue. Okay, number two. <clears throat> What is Catholic social teaching? I'll go a little faster now, just a little faster. With her social teaching, the church seeks to proclaim the gospel and make it present in the complex network of social relations. Salvation permeates this world and the realities of the economy and labor, of technology and communications, of society and politics, of the international community and the relations among cultures and peoples. Salvation permeates the world. Okay, I just want to sort of focus on that for a minute because we just recalled, I'll say. At Hillsdale, people say we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I say we just mourned it, uh, the, the great division in the body of Christ. Um, one of the core issues, as you know, because you were here last year, uh, and heard two of my Hillsdale colleagues speak, uh, was the issue of justification. And so you may recall that uh, the Lutheran and Reform views of justification, think about justification, how we made just before God. What did the cross do? And the way, the, 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 the dominant way in which Protestants of this tradition, I think most Protestants just describe this, is in terms of uh, forensic justification or imputed righteousness. That is, Christ's righteous act on the cross gets imputed to us. When God looks at us, he no longer sees us as sinners, but we still are. We're, so the justification does not transform us, it just covers us before the eyes of God. But for Catholics, as you know, 
Justification is sanctification. Grace plunges its roots deep into the whole nature, all of creation. And so that means that everything is transformed. Politics, economics, carpentry, math, parenting. It's all now affected by grace, or it should be. So that's why we need Catholic social teaching. So some, uh, with all due respect to Father Newman, uh, and, and he, is, he is a brilliant and amazing man. It, it's commonly said that the that Catholic social teaching begins in the 19th century, but I think it begins with the gospel, and he said that too, more or less. But I, I think it begins with the gospel, a right understanding of the gospel. Okay, but that means we have to think about it. Now, uh, if we just had the, first, the point number two I've just made, we could have some confusion. So we need point three to help make clear how grace affects nature. Point three says, affirms the legitimate autonomy of temporal matters. For by their very circumstance of their having been created, all things are endowed with their own stability, truth, goodness, proper laws, and order. Man must res respect these as he isolates them by the appropriate methods of the individual sciences or arts. My point is that the, 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 the great line, one of my favorite lines of Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae is, grace does not destroy nature, but builds on it and perfects it. Grace does not destroy nature, but builds on it and perfects it. That's most true for us. <clears throat> when God sanctifies us, he doesn't make us not us anymore. We don't become aliens through sanctification. We become most deeply, richly ourselves as God willed us to be. So that means politics is going to be politics. The nature is going to remain there. Math is going to be math. I don't know that there's any, I say to my students, uh, what's, what's Christian math? Uh, what would that mean? Do they, you know, they do counting with crosses or I don't know what that looks like to do Christian math uh, and, and the, or Christian carpentry. Uh, I just know what carpentry is like done by a craftsman who wants to sanctify his or her work. <clears throat> so grace does not destroy those natures. So the, the task here is to think about how grace seizes the natural world and elevates it and, how, and what our role and responsibility is in that. Okay, number four, principles, not blueprints. Respect for the legitimate autonomy, so that was what we just read about, of earthly realities prompts the church not to claim specific competence of a technical or temporary order. Christ did not guarantee to the church master knowledge of physics or economics, principally here, this is a big one, or even politics. The church is not an expert in those sciences. The church is an expert in humanity, but not in those sciences. It's not the role of the church to, this Catholic social teaching does not give uh, fixed determinate systems. There's no one system that, that, that follows from the faith. In fact, it's pretty clear from what the church has written that there's a legitimate diversity of regimes, forms of, uh, of living together, cultures, liturgies, right? The various rites of the Catholic faith, I don't know, 20 different rites, uh, ways in which the liturgy can be celebrated. Uh, and this gets back to the Sarando quote at the beginning, right? Um, you know, uh, there's, this, there's, a, there's, I think, been an abuse of Catholic social teaching uh, in the last 30 years, uh, where you know you have to vote for universal health care. Catholic social teaching requires that. Uh, that's like giving a blueprint. Uh, Catholic social teaching does not require that. Um, what does it require? Well, we'll keep going here. What we're going to get are the principles. And it's going to be, well, let's get to point number five, the lay vocation. This is really big here. It belongs to the laity to seek the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will. The laity, that's most of us here. Okay, lay persons are non-religious, non-ordained. 
Okay, that's us. Catholic social teaching is very, very clear. That it is our vocation to go into the world and sanctify it. It's not, so, so we've been hearing a lot about clericalism lately. And clericalism, I think, is a noxious thing and a deep problem. I do think that it is a contributing factor to the sexual abuse crisis that we're seeing right now, but it operates in different ways. Clericalism, put most simply, is the view that only the ordained or religious are really called to be holy. That's where real holiness is. If you really want to be holy, that's what you'll do. And the rest of the lay people, well, we just kind of muddle through. And in, um, in Lumen Gentium, the, you know, the Second Vatican Council added a whole section on the universal call to holiness. The council didn't come up with it. It's in, it's in the Gospels. You can read St. Francis de Sales' Introduction to Devout Life written in the 17th century. That's exactly what he's, he wrote this book. Look, everyone's called to be holy. And one form of clericalism is when laypersons think that it's for the priests or the bishops that tell them how to vote. It's for the priests and the bishops that tell them how to apply the principles of Catholic social teaching. I don't think priests or bishops should, except for some very limited cases where the laws affect exceptionless moral norms, and those are real, and there are a few of them, like killing innocent human beings or like defending marriage. Apart from those, most of these decisions involve a great deal of prudence. They require a great deal of expert knowledge and care, and that's our job as laypersons to understand those things and apply them. So Catholic social teaching uh, is, is for us, all of us. Every Catholic, every Christian, is baptized and anointed at their baptism as a priest, a prophet, and a king. Church is very clear about this. Now, the lay priesthood is not the ministerial priesthood. Got to be very clear about that too. But the priests and bishops, their ordination is to govern the church, to teach, and to sanctify. It's our vocation to go into the world and raise up those temporal realities to God, like real priests in our work. What an amazing thing we can do that. Uh, whether you're you know, working in a trade or whether you're working in some white-collar business, how often do you do, live your priestly vocation by offering up or preach it as your, as your prophetic vocation or live it as a king? Okay, so now wake up, lay people. This is for you, Catholic social teaching. Don't wait around for your bishops and priests to tell you how to live this out. Number six, <clears throat> another point of confusion for many people. Holiness, not activism. What's at the heart of Catholic social teaching? It's got to be rooted in personal conversion. That's the, that's the very heart and center of it. Without interior transformation in Christ, Catholic social teaching becomes mere ideology. And that was, we've seen that happen I think that was the danger of liberation theology in the 70s and 80s, is that theology was being transformed into a political ideology. Um, we need to make personal holiness at the center of it. Mother Teresa exemplifies this, right? Um, early on, when she's out in the streets of Calcutta, she picks up a leper and the sister that's with her, and she, and she begins washing him with her the robe she's wearing, and one of the sisters says, what are you doing? We can't, we can't do this to all of these people. The street was collected with lepers. And she said, no, but we can do it for this one. Right? We can do it for this one. She said, it doesn't matter. Like, the call is not to be successful. The call is to be faithful. Uh, so avoid being activists. She would pray, right, two hours every morning before the Blessed Sacrament, something like that, and I have the details wrong. The reporters were astounded. How do you have time to do all the things you do when you're sitting there praying for two hours in the morning? She said, I couldn't do all those other things if I didn't spend two hours in prayer every morning. Okay, number seven, the dignity of the human person. That is really the heart and center of Catholic social teaching. The guiding principle 
of all the church's social doctrine is a correct view of the human person and of his unique value. Now this next quote was John Paul II, Saint John Paul II's favorite quote. I think he quoted it more than any other. Who knows, maybe he wrote it. Um, it's from Gaudium et Spes, the, the document of the Second Vatican Council. Man, who is the only creature which God willed for itself, cannot fully find himself except through a sincere gift of himself. That's the measure of human flourishing. All, that's the measure. Is this going to protect? Is this, does this treat you like an end? Like someone who, is, who, who has an intrinsic dignity in the image and likeness of God? And does it assist you in making a gift of yourself to others? We need to give ourselves. That's how we grow in holiness and perfection and goodness. We can't just be the recipients of the benefits of others. Sometimes we have to be purely dependent. And that can be a beautiful and difficult thing. People, when they're aging, it's so hard for them to become dependent again. Something we all, there's a charity in being dependent even. Um, but that's the measure of every law we look at. Is it treating like an end in yourself? And is it assisting you in making a gift of yourself? Okay, well, more to say about this. Religious freedom, number eight. All of these are connected to each other. <clears throat> By the way, they're all interrelated. They form a web. Religious freedom, that's been an issue of late, right? Um, of course, the church affirms the freedom of conscience. Religious liberty is one of the highest goods. Uh, the church has a... Um, difficult history of religious liberty and, and working out exactly how to understand this and apply it. But I do want to make this very clear how utterly foundational religious liberty is. Um, prior to, I'll say, I'll say a little bit more about this tomorrow. Let, let me just say this. Uh, religious liberty grows from the very life of Christianity. If there had not been a church there would not have been religious liberty. And because the church demands our highest loyalties, suddenly when you are baptized into Christ, you become a citizen ultimately of the city of God. And then what happens to the political regime of which you're a member? Are you, do you have dual citizenship? How, how do we work that out and understand that? But the church is, the, 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 the fact that this people became citizens of the city of God fundamentally and irre irrevocably changed our understanding of political life. It is, I'll, 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 he, he, this one little fact will exemplify what I'm trying to say, and then we can work it out later if we want to. But uh, the Magna Carta, which is regarded as the great document of uh, democracy, the rule of law, the securing of rights in the West, right? You know, I'll know the, the whole story of the Magna Carta, 1215, I think. Um, that whole thing is engineered by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton. And the, if you go read the Magna Carta, the very first line in it, the very first liberty is, the church will forever be free. All the other things follow from that. If you don't get the freedom of the church first, then all the other liberties become insecure. It's the freedom of the church that makes the others possible. Okay. The common good, number nine. People misunderstand this so much. Look, this, is, this is straight out of the uh, Gaudium et Spes. It's in the catechism. It's, it's really important to pay attention because it's another term, like social justice, I think, that can be abused. And I think the problem is that it's been abused. But that doesn't mean there's not a legitimate use for it. And this is true of the common good as well. It's a word to conjure with. Oh, it's so that you're against the common good. Well, I don't know who wants to be against the common good, but what is that? According to its primary and broadly accepted sense, the common good indicates the sum total of social conditions which allow people, either as groups or as individuals, to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily. Why is that important? In the, Pol in the ancient city, in Greece and Rome, 
your whole identity was realized in your political life. Like to be deliberating in politics, that was in some sense the height of perfect activity. Of course, only men could do it, only men who were citizens, but that's how they understood politics, to be sort of an exhausting thing. And so politics in some sense oversaw and managed every area of life in the polis. I mean, Aristotle and Plato both make clear that the polis, the political authority, should manage the education above all, but everything else. Now, they weren't totalitarian. You know, Plato, he's accused of that in the Republic. I think there's a different reading uh, that's against that, but that's beside the point now. But the fact is that if you read Aristotle's politics, um, he sees that it's the role of the political authority to secure the perfection and virtue of its citizens. That's not what this says. This, what, what the church's understanding of the common good on the face of it indicates is that the common good is a set of conditions which allow us, it's our job within civil society to pursue our flourishing, to pursue virtue, to educate, to grow, to uh, make things, to exchange things, whatever. Uh, that's the role of persons within civil society. It's not the role of the political association to do that for us. And so, um, as I'll point out in just a moment, um, this is going to play out in the principles of solidarity and subsidiarity. In fact, just hold the point I just made. Let's move to solidarity very quickly. Number 10, solidarity is uh, pretty clear. Just says, look, you have an obligation to pursue the common good of the societies in which you live. Not much more to say about that. I think that makes sense. Uh, and it's not controversial. It just says, look, we're not individualists. We do have obligations. We are involved with others. But let's go to the next one, subsidiarity. This is the big one. I love this one. Um, when I was in Catholic schools in the 80s, this one never got talked about. It was always solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. And I remember reading Ten Testaments Honest for the first time and thinking, wow, what is subsidiarity? Did you just make that up? That's a pretty cool idea. I'd never heard that before. I taught at a Catholic university for four years before I came to Hillsdale College, and I was on a panel on, on a Catholic social teaching, um, and I raised this point about solidarity and subsidiarity, and um, there were others in the panel that, uh, who were in the theology department, and they were giving me quizzical looks. And subsidiarity, what, you're really, uh, I don't remember reading about that. Well. It's, 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 notice where it's said and where it's, you know, where it's used and where it's not used is a point I'll make. Notice the documents that give it focus or not. What is subsidiarity? The word is rooted in a Latin word, subsidium, which means help. And here's what it says. The principle of subsidiarity must be respected. A community of a higher order should not interfere in the internal life of a community of a lower order depriving the latter of its functions, but rather should support it in case of need and help to coordinate its activity with the activities of the rest of society, always with a view to the common good. There's a lot of like, this is very wordy here, okay? Very kind of academic sounding. Uh, but what's the point here? It's not the role of the state to run hospitals and orphanages and schools. Why am I picking those? Because it was a time when the church was the only institution that was offering those services to people. And that is still the view of Catholic social teaching. It's not the role of the state to provide those things. It's our role, the layperson's role to provide it. The role of the state the state can step in if there's not enough, you know, if there's a need for it, right? There's where prudence comes in. So you have to vote for uh, universal health care provided by the state because Catholic social teaching requires that. Not so fast, right? Subsidiarity says, yes, we have an obligation to see to it that people have health care. We do have an obligation to do that, I think. 
But it doesn't mean that we think this, that means the state has to provide it. What it means is that the state should at least structure things in such a way that we can provide it better. And there are lots of ways to do that. I think hopefully we'll hear about some of them over the next couple of days. But let's just say that the system in place before Obamacare, I'm not a fan of Obamacare, but the system in place prior to it was a bad system too. I mean, any economist can look at that system and see how that setup requiring third-party payers, you know, uh, allowing, requiring third-party payers to ensure the way in which employers get tax benefits to provide employer insurance, were all set up in a way that was not to the advantage, especially of those who are least advantaged and need health care the most. The way in which states were allowed to limit the market for health care. I mean, there are so many things that could be done to help us be the providers. The state's not supposed to provide. Now look, I'm not giving a libertarian reading of Catholic social teaching here. It does say when, when there's need, the state does need to step in. And I, and I do think that does happen. And again, I think that's an argument that, that can, we can have. Um, okay, 7.31, I'll just go four minutes longer. The family, uh, in my view, the, the, the family is at the center of Catholic, so, uh, Catholic social teaching. Uh, as I said in the 80s, they didn't want to talk about the hip issues, sexuality, that was uh, uh, Jansenist, Catholics, pre-Vatican II Catholics who were hung up about their bodies. We care about helping the poor. Uh, but when you read the documents, uh, it is very clear that the church sees these things, you know, the family and you know, economics and uh, care for the poor all being kind of the same cloth of being rooted in the good of the human person. And the family, in some sense, in my view, is, uh, you know, I, I would even sort of go to the other extreme of what I was told in the 80s and say that not only is care for the family part of Catholic social teaching, but at least right now, it's the most important part. Uh, anyone who does, who makes a, an impartial look at the social scientific data on the causes of poverty, abuse, drug addiction, violence, go across the board on social pathologies, and the single greatest predictive variable is, is family structure and stability. You want to talk Catholic social teaching? You better preserve intact, and yes, heterosexual marriage. That's at the heart of Catholic social teaching. And it needs to be defended even now when it seems like we've lost. Okay. Um, 13, politics. Yes, we need to care about politics. Uh, we should not give up on politics. We have not lost. We cannot give up on politics. Economics, we're going to hear more about that. So maybe, uh, let me just... So I've got some comments here on economics, on the dignity of work, on consumerism. Number 17, on human ecology. I love that term, human ecology, the sort of conditions which promote human flourishing. Environmental stewardship, definitely. Definitely part of Catholic social teaching. That's not just for liberals. But the question is, and we're going to hear a little bit about this, I think, and we'll, we'll get a good take on it. So I won't, I couldn't even if I wanted to take Dr. Richards' uh, line. Uh, uh, property and the prefer preferential option for the poor. War, just war theory. We could talk about just war theory. Fixture, one of, one of the richest fixtures in Catholic social teaching. The last one I have here is on political prudence. Uh, this is really um, you know, a, a, a kind of striking passage. Um, and why did I put it there? Um, I put it there because this is something close, you know, something I've been trying to emphasize for a while. Uh, what does it say? 
Uh, it says we have an obligation to, you know, to, to vote for laws which involve fundamental ethical duties place obligations on us. We have to oppose them. So we can't vote for a political program or law which contradicts fundamental contents of faith and morals. We can't do that. But look what it says next. And in cases where it is not possible to avoid the implementation of such programs or to block or abrogate such laws, the magisterium teaches that a parliamentary representative or congressman whose personal absolute opposition to these programs or laws is clear and known to all may legitimately support proposals aimed at limiting the damage caused by such programs or laws and at diminishing their negative effects on the level of culture and public morality. In this regard, a typical example of such a case would be a law permitting abortion. That's hard. Okay, I grew up, I, I'm in the pro-life. I grew up in the pro-life movement. I'm being recorded here. I've been in jail several times for being in pro-life protests, okay? So I think I'm very pro-life, okay, as I'm saying this. But what the church makes very clear is that we need to avoid a kind of perfectionism in politics. We need to not make the perfect the enemy of the good. And I think too many Catholics do this. They have an idea of politics that requires a kind of perfect, pure vote, principled vote. And I think we need to become a little more prudent about how we're thinking about politics. Okay. Uh, in conclusion, I just appeal to the patron saint of statesmanship, St. Thomas More. Um, he really deserves the title patron saint of Catholic social teaching. Uh, he was a husband, father, writer, citizen, statesman, martyr. On the scaffold, he famously says, I die God's good servant. Uh, I, I die the king's good servant and God's first. Not but God's first, and God's first. And so we too have to be good servants of God and of our regime and promote the common good. Like more, we have to be as courageous as lions, as wise as serpents, and as innocent as doves. Thank you. Okay, as a definition, was that question asking for a definition of the magisterial authority? So, what um, level of authority does social doctrine? Oh, what what level? Uh, well, I think it depends on what the uh, what is being taught exactly. So, for example, when it comes to uh, teaching on the indissolubility of marriage, uh, or the uh, intrinsic, you know, the, the, the intrinsic evil of killing innocent human beings, those are in Catholic social teaching. Um, I, I think the magister, the, the, in my view, these are de fide, infallible teachings. Uh, I think, um, I'm thinking of all the principles that I just listed out here, and, um, you know, I see that, um, you know, uh, they're certainly part of the ordinary magisterium of the church, um, which means that they require for us a kind of obedient, uh, sort of religious assent, submission of will. That means we need to go out of our way to understand them as best we can and to follow them and to be most cautious in dissenting from them. Uh, do, to, to what extent do they reflect a kind of infallible teaching by the ordinary magisterium? I think it would depend on the topic. Okay, I'm sorry. That's not clear. Next question. Would you agree that although he was a rampant anti-Catholic, Charles Dickens best dramatized genuine Catholic social teaching in the 19th century? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I wish I knew Dickens better to say, I know I'm going to offend whoever asked that question, but I, I find Dickens so tedious to read, even though his characters are so brilliantly depicted. They're, they're hard to get through those long, long books. And I like good plots. He's not a plot guy. He's a character guy. Um, 
but it's an excellent question in this respect that Dickens is trying to expose the worst excesses of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, that would then, I think the deeper question is, how are we supposed to evaluate the Industrial Revolution? How, how, how are we supposed to think about that? And uh, I think that's a complicated question, and I'm going to leave it for Jay. Um, uh, all I will say is that we need to be careful not to expect more certitude out of these principles than the realities will give. I think there's a lot of room in the application of these things for legitimate disagreement. Uh, I think in the, in the circumstances of the 19th century, um, along with the Industrial Revolution, were vast increases in, in wealth, and that wealth was being distributed in longevity, in health, in technology. Um, so it wasn't any simple thing. It, it, it improved, there were improvements that came and great costs. Uh, we eventually, I think, got a lot of those costs under control as the wealth grew. Uh, it, the, the wealth could be then used to mitigate some of the things that went wrong. But let's face it, the Industrial Revolution is the seed of the kind of way of life we have today. So in some sense, the question is, um, how do we evaluate the, uh, the, the industrialized technology that we have today? And I was talking to a gentleman, Tom, I believe it was, uh, before um, and I, th I thought that was just a fun question to raise, and I have thoughts about it, but I I've talked too long. So, yes, maybe Dickens could be thought of as expressing Catholic social teaching, but I, my personal view is that he might have um, given us a slightly hyperbolic and romanticized and sentimental view of that picture that was not entirely accurate. In his last book, Michael Novak, that social justice is an individual personal virtue. You mentioned earlier in the lecture that you thought it's more of a political, public virtue. Could you expand on that? Yes, thank you. You guys are good. You're impressive. You're training these people well, Father. Um, yeah, I, even as I was speaking, I was thinking that th this was going to be misunderstood. Uh, so I think social justice is a personal virtue. <clears throat> that governs our political responsibilities. That's what I meant to say. I think it's the personal virtue that governs how we live our political lives, who we vote for, what laws we promote, what, you know, how we affect how things are administered, etc. That's what I meant to say. And when Novak writes about it in the book, he talks about it as a personal virtue which governs our forming private associations and caring for others. He, it's a virtue governing our actions within civil society, but not with respect to the political institutions. Now, I think that Novak, in other places, certainly sees a place for these citizenship virtues. But just in that book, I thought it was maybe missing. I'll answer the last question first, because that's an easy one. No, uh, that is not possible. Um, and let's work our way back. This kind of uh, swings around back to the um, very first question you asked about the magisterial weight of Catholic social teaching and the church's teaching on capital punishment is um, the fact that the church is teaching on capital punishment is part of its magisterium. Now this, I don't like you. Who asked that question? That's not, um, that's hard, right? Um, I think it's hard. I personally think it's hard, okay? Um, so I am not, the, the, the one thing that's imperative that you understand if you're a Catholic is the development of doctrine, right? And no development cannot go opposite. You can't have a doctrine developed to say the opposite of what was previously taught as doctrinal, but um, 
But the church can't have a set of practices or habits that it hasn't thought a lot about and has just done but not really said anything and then reach a kind of an awareness, a new heightened awareness of the wrongfulness of that thing. A clear case is slavery. Um, it, you, the Bible does not clearly condemn slavery. In fact, it seems to endorse it. Um, the church fathers didn't really condemn slavery. Is that, is that a little shocking to you, a little unsettling? Um, and Aquinas gives a kind of guarded endorsement of slavery. And look where we are now. Catholic social teaching makes very clear that slavery is a violation of the dignity of the human person. Of course, they had to define what we mean by slavery, et cetera. But that, in my view, that, that new... The church is teaching now, which I think um, has got to be probably an infallible teaching, is a development that came out of a lot of experience and reflection and understanding. And it doesn't contradict the earlier teaching because the church never definitively said slavery is good. I think it just didn't think about it. It was so embedded in social practices that there wasn't a lot of thinking about it. I'm open to the claim. I'm inclined to think that the church cannot change its traditional teaching on capital punishment, but I am open, I, I'm not convinced of this. I think that there are some good arguments to be made for why the prohibition on capital punishment could be an authentic development, because I don't see any clear evidence that the church ever said, you must believe in capital punishment. I, you know, yes, it was supported and encouraged, but like, Slavery it was. So this may generate you know, lots of discussion. That's what this weekend is for, right? Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome.